Bartlett, and I am the director of the Ada May Ivester Education Center here at the Northeast Georgia History Center. And today I have with me Dr. Chris Coppinger, professor at Georgia Southern University, to discuss the topic of segregation as it occurred in the New South from 1860 to 1914. So thank you so much for being with us today. Pleasure, Marie. So could you perhaps introduce yourself to our listeners? I'm a, an assistant professor of history at Georgia Southern University, where I've been uh, since 2000. In addition to my work in the classroom, I'm, I'm sort of a recovering administrator. I've been working in first year programs for a number of years, uh, but I'm, I'm happy to be teaching history now full time. So today we are going to be talking about your dissertation, mainly you know, segregation in the New South from 1860 to 1914. So could you please define for our listener what the term New South means so we understand where, where we're starting at? Sure. Well, in, in some cases, New South is thought of just as that dividing line between Old South. So it, it's often kind of the, the way we divide between uh, before the Civil War and, and after the Civil War. The term itself is attributed to Henry Grady, the booster and journalist from who worked at the Atlanta Constitution, uh, as it was called then. He, he was a big proponent of uh, Southern industrialization, and would, would do a lot of traveling to, to promote the investment in, in the South. And um, in, in some circles is seen as, as someone who sought to you know, reunite the South, to, to sort of knit the South back in to the body politic of the nation. To be fair, he was doing this really only you know, for, for white people, he was he was uh, an unapologetic white supremacist. And, and ultimately, of course, this is one of the things that undermines his efforts. Uh, some of the things that that he is promoting are the very things that keep the, the South from from being able to embrace the things that he wants it to embrace, including industrialization. So your dissertation looks at segregation in the New South from 1860 to 1914. So how did you choose this time frame to research? I'm looking, so the story of segregation is one that take, takes place primarily, not exclusively, but primarily in urban areas, right? And so I'm focusing on, on the urban South, and in, in my case, specifically on Memphis, Memphis, Tennessee. And so before the Civil War, Black people were really the most rural people in the most rural part of the United States, okay? That changes after the Civil War. Um, in fact, it changes during the Civil War. Places like Memphis, which fell early to the Union, become magnets for escaping freed people, freed men and women, uh, or, or, or runaways who are uh, you know, seeking protection behind Union lines. And that just, that, that increases after visions and certainly after the, the, the Emancipation Proclamation. So you, you get these southern cities become these magnets of population for, for Blacks fleeing from, from the countryside, sometimes fleeing violence as well. It, it, we can overstate this, of course. It is the case that, that Black people and white people remain predominantly rural um, in, in the South for, for many decades, um, but it, it, it begins to change. And the, as so for kind of a terminus date of 1914, that's a period when you start to see migration from the South to Northern cities uh, as, as a part of the, the early stages of the Great Migration during, during the First World War. So the periods of, of my study really focus on the time that the Black urban experience really is a Southern experience uh, predominantly. 
So as we're looking in this time frame of 1860 to 1914, of course, there is you know, a, a very stringent segregated society when slavery is instated. It's a very, very structured society in, in which it is, is based upon slavery. But as the American Civil War continues, and the war then, of course, ends, and, and we have the emancipation of these enslaved individuals, there is then, of course, the Reconstruction period after that, in which these individuals are attempted to be integrated into society in a semblance. But is there still socially imposed segregation before we actually have laws that create a codified type of segregation that we probably think about more so when we think about segregation post-1914? Sure. L- let me kind of back up and, and say a few things about sort of what happened before segregation. And I think, I think you, you hinted at this at the beginning. You know, prior to the Civil War, so during periods of slavery, segregation didn't make much sense. I mean, proximity was important. Proximity meant control. You know, enslavers and enslaved people, you know, they lived in, on the same land, right? You would go to the same churches. It was important. You wanted to be there to hear the message that the enslaved people were hearing, right? You know, to, to, to separate out would have been really, it would have been impractical and, and perhaps even dangerous for, for white people's notions of, of social control, right? Slavery itself was the ordering principle. And I think that that's what you're getting at is, is that what, what eventually replaces slavery, you know, is, well, it's not just segregation. What replaces slavery in the minds of white people is a, is a system of racial subjugation, which we can talk about in, in a little bit if you'd like. But the, the formal sort of legal segregation is something that doesn't pop up whole cloth, at least immediately in all areas. Um, and, and part of what my research focused on was looking at segregation in different contexts. So the segregation that we often think about, so in terms of things like schools, right, the Brown versus Board of Education or Plessy versus Ferguson, which enshrines the notion of separate but equal, you know, that's happening in schools, right? That's a different dynamic than what happens in streetcars. It's also a very different dynamic than what's happening in churches. And it's, it's a different dynamic than what happens as far as residential patterns. And so each of those kind of happens in a different way. And so we can talk about them in differently. The, you know, so again, schools, the thing that gets a lot of our attention because I think of, of Brown and, and rightfully so, schools are, are so instrumental. You know, so much of life is, is, is organized around school. It, it is, is formative. It, it has a big job, right, to inculcate values of citizenship. Uh, it's, it's how we learn a lot of uh, how to interact with, with with each other in schools. And so I think everybody understood rightfully that schools were, were high state. They're segregated almost from the very beginning. Okay, so this idea that there is, you know, that, that segregation is late in coming is, is really a product of what's happening on trains and other places. It, the, the Plessy versus Ferguson case is about a, uh, a railroad car, right, in, in Louisiana. But schools had happened much, much earlier. And they were, they were not segregated. Well, the, the schools that were open to Blacks were largely missionary schools in Memphis and throughout the South. Missionary societies would, would send teachers South, and they were open to white people, but, but most of the time it was 
Blacks who were attending, okay? Uh, Memphis actually did have a school system for white children beginning in 1948. It was actually one of the earlier ones in the South. Schools remained segregated, you know, from, from 1848, um, you know, all the way to Brown uh, in, in, in Memphis. Only white children are supported in those public, public schools until there is a separate bill that is passed in the, the late 1860s that provides public support for, for black children as well. There could have been some, some wringing of hands about this, uh, but really it was a secondary issue, schooling. The, the most important thing, the most urgent thing for, for black, and I would say black children, but also black adults who had been prohibited from learning to read was, was education itself. They were not as concerned about whether or not they were doing it next to white children. That just was not, that was not as important. And so it kind of took a back seat even though it is something that is very much a part of our consciousness now because of Brown and, and, and other things. But, but you asked specifically about the issues of social segregation. And so I don't know if you would, you would lump churches in there, but maybe I'll, I'll talk about them in, in that context. There, the agents of segregation, and, and this is a little bit weird to talk about it this way for some folks, because they always see, the way we generally talk about segregation is something that white people impose upon black people. And that's the way it mostly functioned, okay? I think in, in, in many different contexts. But it was really Black people that, in many cases, took the initiative to leave white churches. Um, it was their um, sense of, of uh, community building in some senses. They had a very different understanding of, of the story of, of Christianity, even though they identified very strongly with Jesus, they, they also were much more likely to focus on the stories of the Old Testament and particularly the story of Moses. Okay, so had, had a very different understanding of what needed to be emphasized. And so you saw African-Americans leaving and forming their own denominations. It was one of those first acts of agency that they were able to, to exercise. And there are a couple of cases in my research where the, the white churches are, are a little, they're, they're concerned. They're asking about even using terms like brother so-and-so, you know, where is brother so-and-so? Now, this is in the context of, of a really brutal, you know, racial amount of violence. Uh, and I, I can't emphasize that enough, but um, the process of separation when it came to churches was just a very different one. And then what happens in Communities and is is often less a conscious choice in some cases. Um, there, there was zoning in the South, but it comes late. We can, we can talk a little bit about some of that if, if you'd like. But a lot of the sorting out of Southern cities, uh, I argue, happens in reactions um, to violence. Not wanting to be around uh, people. Black people making decisions, black people and white people sort of saying, let's go to our separate corners rather than to to try to contest this space where it is more likely that uh, we will either we'll be in situations where we perpetuate violence, either being the, the victims of it or, or the aggressors. And so you get situations in the wake of of um, increased racial tensions and the there's a horrific triple lynching in Memphis. In, in 1892, and following that, you know, a block which had been fairly racially integrated becomes all white. And I can't 
explain exactly why, uh, but you know, I, I think that the, the the story was was largely one where the African Americans there said, you know, this is not worth it. I'm going to go elsewhere. Uh, so you, you get a sorting out process that happens for for, for very different reasons. So I, I think segregation is a complicated uh, concept, and we just need to explain it in its different context and understand that there were different motivations behind those. Absolutely, because I think myself included is, you know, we kind of have like this general understanding of, oh, there's the, the Civil War, there there is, you know, freedom and emancipation. And then it seems like perhaps that Reconstruction is going well at first, and then it doesn't, and then you have segregation. But from what you've been saying is that it's kind of all in there. It's a very complicated and convoluted subject in which there always has been once you have the really the, the freedom of those who had been enslaved is then there is this resorting out of society in the South. Would that be a kind of a, a somewhat summarizing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, segregation becomes uh, certainly, and, and by, the, by, by the 1890s, it becomes a primary dividing line. Uh, for how to order society, right? It, it in some ways replaces what slavery had been. And so it, it does, I mean, there's a reason that we focus on it, right? Because it is, it is pernicious, right? It is, it is the way that white people exercise social dominance. It is um, well, economic resources to, to the resources that, um, that are going to be for your children in the case of schools, for instance. It, it is a, a primary ordering mechanism in society, but it takes a while to get there, right? It doesn't happen just in a, in the, in the snap of, of a finger. And if, if we're really interested in why white people and black people are just in separate contexts, though, we need to also think about things like churches, which are just, it's, it's just different. It's a different, a, a different motivation for why that's happened. And so we, we need to, to be willing to embrace a little bit more complicated story. Now, of course, you had mentioned Plessy versus Ferguson, which I think most people point to as the beginning of, quote unquote, segregation. Would you agree with that statement or do you think, again, it is indeed more complicated? Oh, no, no. I think it's, yeah, it's a lot more complicated. I mean, in, in, in fact, I mean, you know, so a lot of segregation was happening without the force of law. So there were cases you know, prior to the, the Plessy case coming down where it was just understood that um, in certain circumstances, you know, black people were not welcome. So, I mean, there's an old sort of English common law idea that if you if you have a public accommodation like a hotel or, or something else, that you should serve those who, who come to your uh, establishment. But in practice, that's just not the way it worked. People had a lot of of um, autonomy to to deny service to people who came into there, and so it was exercised, I think, informally you know, uh, prior to that. And it, it, then again, in the case of schools, I mean, it, it was not, it was legal and it was codified early. So this, it, you know, much, much, much earlier. And then, like I said, churches, I think, sort of a, a different configuration there um, that um, get to a place where certainly white congregations are saying black people are not welcome here. That, that happens. Um, but in Memphis, at least, it doesn't seem to happen immediately. There is this sort of sense of why. It, it seems strange now to read in some cases, like why, why, why have our black congregants stopped coming to church? You know, here in this in this world that has been turned upside down, um, you know, there, and 
that from our perspective, looking back on this, it just makes a whole lot of sense that they've got a different story that they want to tell in church. But contemporaries seem to really be struggling with why their congregant, you know, was no longer willing, you know, to sit next to them in the pew when in fact, or they, they likely wouldn't have sat next to them in the pew, but, but, you know, to have participated in that service together in an environment where, you know, they were being, uh, where, where they were still trying to figure out exactly what those, what those relationships um, were to have looked like. You know, this is the same time where states are passing black codes before the, before the 14th amendment. People have to, you know, have to behave in certain ways. They have to be, you know, they can't travel without a pass and other sorts of things. The idea that you would want to, to participate in a, in a um, in church service with that person seems to me to be a little silly now, but that's that's what contemporary white people were saying. And it, I think it's, it's interesting the extent to which many white people had deluded themselves to thinking that, that somehow slavery was um, something other than just awful. So what do you think is the significance of Plessy versus Ferguson then? Could you explain to our listeners what exactly that court case looked like and how it perhaps did and or didn't have that much of an impact? Well, no, it was still pretty important because it did, you know, there, there were, there had been some attempts, there was, there was a, a Civil Rights Act in, in sort of the, the waning days of the, the period of Reconstruction passes in, in 1875, all right, that seeks to, to do actually what what ends up happening in, in, in 1964, it's, it seeks to do some of those same things to, to open up public accommodations to, on, on an integrated basis to, to, to Black people as, as well as white people. That was almost immediately made ineffective in Memphis and throughout the South through, through the court systems. They, they focused on previous court cases like the, the slaughterhouse cases. Um, and then there was a, another uh, Supreme Court case in 1883 a series of cases that basically limited the effect of those things. And so it had been started to have been weakened. But it, it is with Plessy that there is a very clear statement by the court. You know, there's only one dissenting vote, which basically says, you know, yes, there should be access to, to these resources, but the courts cannot be in the business of forcing or really even promoting the values of, of social um, interaction between between the races, right? and, and that they, they sort of go on record saying that it is okay for for states to impose that if they or that is the message that that Brown you know turns on its head, basically says that that this of social segregation is damaging in and of itself and must be overturned. So, and and that's in the eighteen nineties, correct? Let's see, first mm-hmm, eighteen ninety six. So. Going into the turn of the century, how does that affect what segregation looks like going in uh, up until you're at the point of where your dissertation stops, which is 1914? So it, it becomes more more entrenched. Um, so this is, you know, this is not happening in a vacuum. This is also a period of pretty horrific violence. The 1890s are the most violent decade as far as as far as lynchings. Um, I mentioned the one in, in Memphis. The, this is a triple lynching. You know, you get, and it's it's also particularly bad in Georgia. There are over 500 uh, lynchings in Georgia throughout the period that we normally track. And again, the the, the period of the 1890s was was um, one of the most intense. This is also the period where 
states, including Georgia, are passing disfranchising legislation. So they're they're further taking away power, the, the power of the vote, the, the ability to stop any of this is is fading away. The, the, those efforts are very successful. In Georgia, we have a poll tax, a cumulative poll tax, even. That's a real disincentive to black people. And it, it just, I'm oh, sorry. You could say that again. Somehow I think I, I lost it in, uh, in going over Zoom. Okay, yeah. There is a, a poll tax in Georgia that is one of the disfranchising pieces of, of um, the, the, the act of disfranchisement is one of the things that, that makes it, it just solidifies the, the power of, of, of white people. I would also say that what happens is that the, I mean, this begins in the 1870s and then accelerates, I think, after the the Spanish-American War, when there was another war, you know, that that uh, that is kind of a, a way to, you have white people and black people, I mean, sorry, white, white people in the North and the South, you know, fighting on the same side again. You get, you, there there's this sort of, sort of, Detente between North and South among white people, not among black people. Really, are not a part of that conversation. And so, but it, but it, it. Uh, so, so you get, for instance, the the, the monument buildings throughout the South, but but also, for instance, a, a Confederate monument installed in in Arlington. You know, the, this this period that the North is sort of moving on, and in some ways leaving people behind. And it's it, at some level, it's a a really depressing ending, you know. Uh, it's 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 a low point for race relations in the 1890s and the first decades of, of the of the 20th century, and then accelerates into things like birth of a nation, emergence of the of the Ku Klux Klan. So uh, it, it it it's not something that improves quickly at all. No, no, it it definitely does does not. Previously, uh, you had mentioned housing and how. I think you said something about it. Those district things came came later, uh, perhaps. Could you perhaps further explain those divisions in housing and, and how those came to be? Oh, just generally, zoning comes late to the south. Oh, no, so no, no, you know, yeah. You, okay. yeah, and you don't. So you don't have as as much of an advanced um, sort of you know uh, land use. <laughs> we still see some of this uh, in, in small towns in the south today, but. There, there was not. So for the most part, housing does not is, is not segregated by law. There is a period and it's a very short period from about 1910 through 1917. There's a, a Supreme Court case, the Buchanan versus Worley case that puts an end to this. But where some communities and it's, it's really larger cities, St. Louis is one, I believe, Louisville is another that seek to impose Segregation of ordinances, right? Only black people can live here and only white people can live here. Okay. It doesn't last long. And it, it falls in 1917 because of the Supreme Court case, in part because of the power of property ownership. Property ownership is sort of sacrosanct in the United States. And ultimately, the, the ability of a person to sell his or her property to someone else just trumped everything else. And so the courts overturn an effort at, at segregation and basically say, you can't do that. Okay. What persists up until the, the late, it's the late 1940s, 1948, is 
the restricted covenants. So you could write into your deed that you know you could only sell to 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 a white person. That case is is overthrown sort of in the in the lead up to the the Brown decision as um, as being unconstitutional as well. So th- there were these sort of beginnings of uh, chipping away at the at the rationale for segregation that that began as early as is the the nineteen teens. It was not as much of a it, perhaps I'm to to use the word socially imposed rather than it was in the housing situation rather than perhaps a government imposing it upon people. Well, yeah, the, the restricted covenants are, are allowed to stand for, for another 30 years or so because that was seen as a voluntary act that was taken you know, by people uh, entering into a contract to do something. But for the government to say, what, what, the, what the Buchanan decision said is that the government can't be enforcing who you can sell something to. Right. If, if you want to sell your property to somebody who happens to be black, you can do that. It's not the government's role to be able to do that. What is allowed for another 30 years or so is the ability to write essentially racially discriminatory uh, restrictions into deeds. But, but that, too, ends in, in shortly after World War II. So I think we've, we've talked about schools and and housing and churches what about in transportation? That is always a, a very large subject of segregation, considering Plessy versus Ferguson was, was brought about because of a, a, a train car or a streetcar, I believe. And of course, you have Montgomery bus boycott because of, of transportation. So between the period of 1860 and 1914, do we see a segregation of sorts in transportation as well? Or I guess, how would we see that if to exist. I mean, and it happens in different ways. And I think in some ways, this is where some of the distinctions that I try to make very clear start to blur because what happens on a streetcar is, you know, that's another close proximity sort of situation. And despite the best efforts to sort of separate and to diffuse the racial tension, you know, when the streetcar gets full, you know, you got people you know, packed in together. Everybody understands what this is like if you've ever been on a, on a, on a subway car. And, and that was those were those were times that that they could be pretty explosive. The Louisiana case that results in Plessy is a separate car law. You know, actually having separate you know, separate cars. Now, that's not always practical in, in all these transportation. Certainly not in a streetcar. You know, you don't have the ability to to do this. And so, and I think it, it happens. It does not happen uniformly. There's not a story to say that in you know um, by you know by this date everything was this way. You know, and I think that in many cases. What, what needed to happen was that there was a, a realization that that these services were needed by, especially especially as residential segregation was increasing. So you mentioned Montgomery. You know, the challenge was is that that unlike what would have been the case in 1860, right, when in, in the wake of you know where, where black people and white people were living on the same property, that was not the case in in Montgomery. You know. The great challenge of the Montgomery bus boycott, the one that is overcome by the African-American community in, in Montgomery, is a transportation challenge. You know, how are they going to get to work? You know, they, they maintain this for a year. How are they going to do that? And it is a logistical triumph, really, that they're able to do that. But yes, it is, um, it, it is a place that is um, 
transportation is is explosive because of that, because of the proximity and the, the chance for for violence. I don't know that there is a well, at least I'm not comfortable in telling a sort of a specific story about this is exactly the way it happened. I think there are probably uh, lots of variation in, in different contexts. As it seems like this is something that very much is affected from city to city and place to place as to how codes, laws, socially ideals changed, perhaps. I think you can make a you can make a statement that there would have been you know widely um, sort of understood that there would would need to be some sort of a separation that served the purpose of white people. So. Segregation in public accommodations was like segregation in schools in this way, is that it was meant to telegraph a message about imposing social order, right? I am in the, you know, a white person was essentially saying is that I'm not going to give you the benefit of social intercourse, right? So we're going to, we're going to be separate, right? We're going to drink from separate water fountains, right? We're going to be separate because we should not interact unless, unless that interaction has some other power dynamic which makes it very apparent white people are superior to black people. So, you know, if there's an employer relationship or some other sorts of relationship, you could you could have that kind of relationship. But if you're on a busy street car where there is not that personal relationship, okay, or where there is not a, a, a clear hierarchy that is known by all, segregation is a way to mark that out. And I think that that's, that's the function that it played more than anything else. So as we conclude this podcast, what is something that, what, what's the, the, the larger takeaway from this? Would you think that when you were researching and this, that you came away of with a better understanding of and would like other people to come away with a better understanding of? Yeah, I mentioned two things. So, so one is, is that I, I don't want anything that I've said, particularly when it came to churches, to make it sound like that seg- segregation was was not as bad as I think that uh, we, we often think. Segregation, all segregation, even even the segregation that's happening in churches is the product of racial subjugation. If there had not been slavery, right, if, there, you know, if, if we posit a very different world, then we wouldn't have had segregation, <laughs> but, but we don't live in that world, right? And so, you know, the all of these dynamics, and certainly the dynamic that's happening in, in residential patterns and things like that, is about power. It's about power. Avoiding conflict, you know, does not is not a lessened form of, of segregation. Even if black people had a little bit of agency, even if, if even if a black person was saying, you know what, I'm gonna not live here anymore because, <laughs> and, and the black person is making the decision. Is that black person really making that decision? You know, freely? No, making that decision under duress. I do want to complicate the the idea of, of, of what segregation is, though. It didn't always function exactly like we were just describing on streetcars, that what's happening in churches is real. And if we really want to understand why we are a segregated society today, I think we need to understand some of its more messy history, right? We need to understand, you know, that motivations for how we got there. And, and ultimately, the decisions about how we fix that, right, are going to be ones that are going to, have to be undertaken by everybody and not just by people of color. And I think that that's um, so, for instance, if you care about integrating your worship services, that's not something that probably means 
that if, if, if you're a white person, right, that, that more that there should be more black people coming to my church. Right. <laughs> it might mean that as a white person, you know, you, you're seeking out places where you would be welcome. And my experience has been that black churches are very welcoming um, <laughs> for, of white people. That's uncomfortable for many white folks. But that's the way this is. That's the way this changes. Uh, it, it, it can't be just something that uh, where the impetus of, of change is is placed on. Uh, essentially, that can't put the impetus on efforts of integration solely on the shoulders of people who have been marginalized. I think that is a a very good conclusion to this podcast. That was incredibly enlightening and complicated all at the same time because this is an incredibly complicated topic and still is something that we can see you know carrying on into society to this day so thank you so much for talking with us today and perhaps intriguing people to to perhaps look into this subject further and also sharing with us just the exact complicated nature of this thanks marie It's, it's been my pleasure Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the Donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Use promo code THENAGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.